If you'd open your Bibles tonight to 2 Samuel chapter 6, as we continue on in this journey through this great book of 2 Samuel, and you've joined us tonight if you're visiting as we've come to this sixth chapter. Before we look at it, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inspired scriptures. We realize that all scripture is inspired by thee. It's profitable for us, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works as your people. And I pray that this passage tonight would do that kind of work in us, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. There's an interesting verse of scripture in the book of Proverbs in the section that was written by Solomon, who was David's son, I'm reading through the Bible, and I just read that verse earlier this week. Solomon wrote, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, there are many ways that apply that proverb, but the main point is easy to see. And that is, in all areas of life, people make decisions that seem right to them at the time, but the consequences of those decisions can be disastrous. For example, every person who's ever got involved in immorality thought it was a good option at the time, only to discover it led to total misery. Every person who ever got addicted to anything, whether it's alcohol or drugs, thought it was the right thing to do at some point of time, only to learn it was wrong. Every person who ends up in hell really thought their religion or works could save them. It seemed right to them, but it is the way of death. But here's what all people need to realize, and that is no matter how right it may seem, if it disobeys the word of God, the end result will be disastrous. That's true for the worst sinner on this earth, and it's also true for the best of God's saints. And if ever you want to see an example of that in living color, it's right here with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the sacred Ark that contained the written Word of God, and God laid out very carefully specific guidelines concerning this Ark. According to Exodus 25, two poles were to be put through the rings on the side of the Ark, and the priests were to move the Ark, and that's the way they were to transport it from one place to another. In fact, I do want you to go to Numbers 4 for just a second, if you just back up to Numbers chapter 4 for just a second, because I want to point out a verse that becomes very significant when we look at verse 15 in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 15. Here's what we read, Numbers 4.15, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out after the sons of Kohath shall come and carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. So what God said is when you are transporting this particular sacred item of the Ark of the Covenant, God makes it very clear if you touch this Ark, you're going to die. Now, David was being blessed of God at this point. He had made Jerusalem the capital. His family's expanding. His house is being built. He's winning wars with the Philistines. And Israel and Judah had completely supported him and joined him. And finally, for David, life was good. And that's when problems can come in. When life is good, you can let down your guard. And when life is good, you don't want to get sloppy, especially when it comes to the Word of God. 
Now, David loved the Lord. He loved the word of God. He gave glory to God. We've been seeing that as we've been journeying through his life. One thing David wanted to do was to bring that sacred ark to Jerusalem. It had been built about, oh, 450 years before David was even on the scene. And Moses was the one who had that ark constructed. You can read about that in our Exodus 25 study where we go through all the dimensions of this ark. It was a box, a box that was about 3.75 feet long, 2.25 feet wide, 2.25 feet deep. It was overlaid with gold. On the sides of it were golden rings. The total weight of this thing was about 90 pounds. And so ultimately, what David decided to do is, you know, that ark box with the word of God in it is not in Jerusalem, and I want to get it, and I want to bring it to Jerusalem. And he's about to learn an important lesson when he does it. And the lesson he learns is the word of God is sacred, serious business. And if you as a leader do something that may be well-meaning, your actions may be well-meaning, that will never supersede faithful obedience to the word of God. In other words, good intentions don't lead necessarily to good conclusions. In God's mind, the end does not justify the means. In God's mind, you can't just blatantly disobey the word of God and expect the outcome to be good. And David's going to learn this lesson the hard way. Now, verse 1 of 2 Samuel 6 says this, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Bala, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. According to verses 1 and 2, after this victory of the Philistines, he defeated them twice. He had removed the idols. He had taken care of that. He gathered 30,000, which is about 10%, because remember the numbers with David now are over 300,000. So he gathers 30,000 of his best fighters, and he decided, I'm going to move that ark. I don't think the Philistines are a threat anymore, and I'm going to go get that ark. And he's not taking any chances, but he says, I'm going to go get this ark, and I'm going to bring it to Jerusalem. Now, the ark was located in Abelah, Judah, known as Kiriath-Jerim. So the ark of the covenant was located about nine miles north of Jerusalem. If you want to put this in some perspective, from here to the West Main Exit in 131. That's about how far away the ark was located from where David was. The ark had probably been sitting in this location ever since the death of Eli in 1 Samuel chapter 7. It's been sending there probably 70 years. I mean, it's been setting out of Hebron and out of Jerusalem for some 70 years. And David decided, you know, I need to get that ark. I need to go nine miles and get that ark, and I need to bring it to Jerusalem. And what we realize here is there are 10 chronological realities that God reveals to us. First of all, they put the ark on a new cart to transport it. Notice verse 3. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Yutzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. Boy, this is nice. David decides, I'm going to have a brand new cart built to transport this ark. Now, he probably got that idea from 1 Samuel chapter 6, because that's what the Philistines did when they wanted to get rid of the ark. 
They said, this ark is bringing us misery and trouble. We want to get rid of it. And so in that context, they built a new cart that had never been touched by any man, and they hooked it up to oxen, and they let the oxen go. You remember that story when we went through 1 Samuel. They just let the oxen go. And the oxen took the ark right back to where it belonged. And David must have been rolling that through his mind. He's thinking to himself, well, we're going to get this ark, so I'm going to have a brand new cart built, not going to be used, it's not going to be anything shabby for the Lord, it's going to look good, it's a new cart that no one has ever used, and he must be thinking, well, that's really going to please God if we do that. Now, even though David had a brand new cart for transporting the ark, that's not the way it's supposed to be transported. According to the word of God, God demanded when you transport that ark, priests are supposed to move it. And what they're supposed to do is put those poles that we've designed through those rings on the side of the ark and put it on their shoulders. And it's true, it weighs 90 pounds, but there were enough priests so that you could each travel just a short distance and pass it off to another priest. And he said, you don't want to violate this. You don't want to, in the transportation of this ark, decide you're going to do this or wing it on your own because God says, this is sacred stuff here. This is my word here. It's serious business. Now, what I would assume is that the priests that are involved here put it on the cart by using the poles. So by putting it on the cart, they're not actually touching this, so they are using the poles to set it on the cart. But that's not the same as transporting it. Which brings us to the second reality. They began to bring the ark from Abinadad's house to Jerusalem. Notice verse 4. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and the heel was walking ahead of the ark. Ahio and Yutza are sons of Abinadab. Abinadab had another son whose name was Eliezer, who was responsible to take care of the ark when it first showed up at his house in 1 Samuel chapter 7. His house was located on top of a hill, and they brought the ark on the cart, and Ahio is walking in front of it. Both Ahio and Yutza are priests, and God had been blessing Abinadad's house for years, and Ahio and Yutza knew it. They knew by having this ark in our home, God is blessing us. And you would have thought, you know, since we're priests, maybe, maybe we ought to check out what the Word of God says on moving this. And we understand they want to move it to Jerusalem, but maybe before we do this, we might be wise if we are to look into the scriptures and find out exactly how we're supposed to do this. Which brings us to the third reality. David and his men were celebrating the fact the ark was being transported. Verse 5 says, Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Apparently, there was something like a marching band. I mean, this is a big deal. you got a nine-mile parade going here. you got like a marching band leading the procession. All of Israel is involved in celebrating, and this band, multiple instruments are being played in the march in this nine-mile trip. There were those in the marching band that had different instruments. You have this lyre that's a U-shaped harp with seven strings. You have harps and tambourines. That's a percussion instrument. You know what that is, a castanet. That's that thing they put in their hands and click it. You know, you've seen these people do this with that. That's what that is. And cymbals. I mean, this is a festive deal going on here. These people are making this march like it's just a wonderful thing, and they're marching along. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with proper celebration at a proper time. But this is very presumptuous. To move the sacred word of God without a great reverence for the word of God is a serious, serious violation of the scriptures. And you don't want to get light and having a party atmosphere when it comes to sacred things of worship. I'm sure the worship service made the people feel good. I mean, I'm sure they're as happy as can be. In fact, the text would indicate that. They're joyful. They're celebrating. But I'll tell you this, their celebration is not consistent with the word of God. This is going to end in disaster. And by the way, this marching band is outdoors in a parade. It's not in a sanctuary in a church. Some have tried to use this text as a basis for having electric guitars and drums and cymbals during what they call their worship service. That is a complete misrepresentation and misapplication of what is actually happening here. In fact, what actually happens here would actually militate against it. This marching band would never have gone into the tabernacle or into the sacred areas of later when Solomon would build the temple with any of this stuff. What you have here is a public procession of moving the ark from one place to another. Now, the fourth reality is during the procession, one of the oxen stumbled. Notice what happens in verse 6. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Yutza reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen nearly upset it. As the cart rolled down the road, they came to what's called the threshing floor of Nakon. Now, I, I had to look up and see Middy's pictures of threshing floors because I'm not sure what we were up against here. But a threshing floor was a place where they would put these stalks of wheat, and it was like a stone floor. So it would be raised up above the ground. It could be about that far raised up above the ground. And then it was a big circular kind of thing that had these grooves between the stones. So ultimately, when the wind would go through there, the chaff would just blow out of there. And if you were to be pulling something in an oxen and you come up and you've got all this wheat covering this thing, I could see how an oxen could easily actually bump its hoof into the side of that stone threshing floor, or if they happened to be walking over it, I could see how they could actually stumble if their hoofs got in anywhere between those stones. But regardless of how it happens, it happened. As the oxen were carrying this ark, the oxen stumbled. And Yutza reached out instinctively, thinking, I'll just stabilize this ark and I'll protect it from falling. But there are two critical issues here. Number one, the ark wasn't even supposed to be transported this way. According to the word of God, the ark was to be carried by the priest via the poles on their shoulders. They will ultimately learn that lesson. And number two, if you should happen to touch the ark, you'll die. So if God's word had been obeyed initially, this whole mess would have never happened. If the priest would have said, you know, we need to be serious about the word of God, the ark would have never fallen off the cart because the oxen would have never been involved in pulling the ark of the covenant on a cart. But let me just pause here to make a point. God doesn't forget about his word because people forget about it. 
God doesn't forget about his law because people forget about his law. You may think to yourself, well, my sin, he'll just forget about it. He'll overlook it. No, no, he won't. In fact, apart from Jesus Christ, you're storing up wrath, Romans tells us. And ultimately, that law, and he'll not forget one jot or tittle from that law, that law will kill you apart from Christ. Because God isn't just going to forget about it. Because you have good intentions to be a good boy or girl. God's word makes it very clear that there's one way, a narrow way of salvation, and it is faith in Jesus Christ. But man, one thing we certainly see here, if God's people would have simply just obeyed the word of God on this issue, they could have saved themselves a disaster. And isn't that true? If God's people would simply obey the word of God, they could save themselves a lot of heartaches and disasters. Which brings us to the fifth reality. God was angered by what Yutza did. You'll notice in verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Yutza, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Now, when Yutza sees that ox stumble, he really believes he's protecting the ark by grabbing it. But what he's actually doing is defiling the ark by touching it. See, God is perfectly capable of defending the ark by himself. I mean, they shouldn't have been hauling it on this cart in the first place. But God was completely capable of defending the ark by himself. So what's actually happening here is the priest, in clear violation of the word of God, is blatantly disobeying the word of God. And in his mind, he's justified in doing it. He has somehow convinced himself that the end justifies the means. But in God's mind, this is irreverent. You do not disobey my word. You do not treat my ark lightly. And God killed him. See, it angers God when he's not reverent. So I'm telling you that right now. Going through all these books of the Bible, it just angers God when there are these loosey services that people call worship. They aren't worship. God is a God who demands to be reverenced. And when his people get involved in doing irreverent things, and they're supposed to be doing this in the context of something sacred, it angers him. It's kind of like that Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate, Lord willing, next Sunday here. We'll have the Lord's Supper. There were people going to the Corinthian church, and they're going, they're half drunk. And they just think it's just fine. And Paul said, you partaking of the Lord's Supper irreverently. I mean, this is a sacred thing to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And you're partaking of this irreverently. And he said, for this reason, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are dead. In other words, you don't treat the sacred things of God lightly. And you don't treat the Son of God lightly. Which brings us to the sixth reality. David reacts to all of this in verses 8 to 11. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Yutzah, and that place is called Peretz Yutzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite, 
Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. When David saw what God had done, he has an emotional reaction. As Robert Bergen said in his commentary, he flew into an emotional storm. And he reacted in four ways. He was angry with God. That's what the text says. He was so angry with God that he actually named the spot where this happened. Peretz Yutzah, which means Yutzah's breach. Outbreak against Yutzah. That's what he named the place. This is the place where God had an outbreak against him. David actually thinks in his own mind at this point, this isn't fair. He's actually challenging God. This is like an unfair thing that God has done here. It angered him. Secondly, he's afraid of God. Verse 9 says, so he was afraid of the Lord that day. God and his word are to be reverenced. And that's a good thing. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And David would teach his son Solomon that very point. I think, in part, he learned that lesson here. You do not think lightly of the word of God. You do not treat it lightly. It is to be reverenced, and God is to be feared. And by the way, when you use the term reverence, you have to see here, it would include the idea of actually being afraid or being terrified that I could do something that would anger God. Because people take the idea of reverence just kind of lightly, but there is a sense of fear in reverence that's right and holy and good. His third reaction is he questioned the moving of the ark. David said, well, how can I even get this ark to Jerusalem? Well, you could get the ark to Jerusalem if you obeyed the word of God. If you went back to the scriptures and looked and see how you're supposed to bring the ark and move the ark, you could get it to Jerusalem. But at this point, David isn't thinking in those terms. The priest could have used the poles and transported the ark. It would have been no problem bringing it nine miles. And the fourth reaction is David refused to move the ark to Jerusalem. Verse 10, he said, I'm not willing to do this anymore. And so, verse 11 says, that ark remained at the home of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. For three months, that ark stayed there. And while that ark is there, God blesses that house. God blesses houses and homes that reverence his word. He blesses individuals who reverence his word. Which brings us to the seventh reality. David brings the ark to Jerusalem. Now notice verse 12. Now, it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling, and David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. Now let me show you what David actually did to get this ark there. Go over to 1 Chronicles 15. I know it's one of your favorite books. 1 Chronicles 15. Just turn right in your Bibles and go there for a few pages and you'll come to 1 Chronicles 15. Because I want to tell you what David does here. I want to, Well, the scriptures will tell us what he did. 1 Chronicles 15. Notice verse 11. Here's the difference now. We're not going to have a cart and ox do this. That's not how we're going to get this from here to Jerusalem. We read in verse 11, David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priest, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, 
And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it, because you did not carry it at the first, and the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priest and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of God. If you'd have done that in the first place, you wouldn't have had this mess. David was told that God was blessing the house of Obed-Edom, and he just said, we've got to get that ark and bring it to Jerusalem. So obviously, he discovered that there is a way that we can transport this very safely as long as we're obeying the scriptures. We don't have to worry about angering God. So he no longer uses a cart, but he gets the priest, and he gets multiple priests to get involved in this because they're carrying 90 pounds on their shoulders with poles, two poles, and they're obviously doing this in somewhat of a relay. So a couple of priests would go for a while, then a couple more priests would replace them, and they're going to travel the nine miles doing that. But when they first got going, after their first six paces, David had the men stop, and he offered a sacrifice to the Lord. He's basically saying, we blew it last time, Lord. We're not going to blow it this time. So he's relying upon that sacrifice. He realizes, you know, I didn't even consult with God on this. I never even checked the word of God on this. I just flew off, as it were, half-cocked and just did this thing myself. He said, no more, we're not operating like that. And according to verse 14, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. He put on some priestly ephod garment. He's identifying himself with the people and with the priest here. He obviously has taken off his kingly clothes that he would have had being the king. And you know, you look at that and you think, boy, that's really odd. But man, just watch a baseball game when somebody hits a walk-off homer. They dance around the bases. The whole team comes out jumping up and down. And people don't think anything about that. This is a real victory moment here. I mean, this is the moment when ultimately the Ark of the Covenant is going to go to Jerusalem. So David and all the house of Israel are bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with shouting and the sound of a trumpet. And this was a joyous celebration for nine miles. No more anger or fear. Why? Why is there no more anger or fear? Because he's obeying the word of God. When you're obeying the word of God, you have a confidence to you. Not an arrogance but a confidence that you know you're in a right relationship with the Lord. Obviously, David understood that at this point. Which brings us to the eighth reality. There's Michael, the daughter of Saul. She sees David celebrating. Verse 16 says, Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, that says a lot about that woman. She's a piece of work, as you'll see. David was just joyous. We've got the word of God, the ark of God coming to Jerusalem. He's leaping before the Lord. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window. She despised him. You shouldn't be mixing with those common people. You're the king. My dad, Saul, he was king. He'd have never done anything like that. Of course not. He never was that thrilled about the word of God ever in his life. She obviously was not out celebrating with the other people. 
She's not happy the word of God's coming to Jerusalem, anything but that. And David obviously is being distanced from Michael physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and probably she despises David because she realizes God is blessing him. God is blessing him more than he ever did my dad. And he's blessing him more than he did my former whiny husband, Patio. And David had a love for the Lord. And it was obvious and it was evident that he loved the Lord, but not the daughter of Saul, not her. Which brings us to the ninth reality. David responds to the ark being brought to Jerusalem. Notice verse 17. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. When the ark came to Jerusalem, there were four responses. Number one, he put that ark in the tent that he had prepared for it. He intends to make Jerusalem the center of worship of Almighty God from this point on. He wants Jerusalem to be the central point of worship of the living God. Secondly, he offers burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. Now, the burnt offering, and it's been a long time since we studied that stuff in Exodus and Leviticus, but the burnt offering is an offering that was dealing with sin issues, making atonement for sin. And the peace offerings were offerings that were basically illustrating that you can have fellowship with God, you're at peace with God. And David said, this is a great moment here. I mean, we've brought this ark here, and we don't want sin blocking a relationship with God, and we want to have fellowship with God. So he made these offerings. Then he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. I love that. Verse 18, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God, the sovereign God who controls everything, who's over everything, he's pronouncing a blessing as king on these people. And then he distributed supplies to all the people in Israel. The people are celebrating in this wonderful moment the bread and the dates and the raisins would have helped sustain them, and he's a gracious, generous type of king, and he just shares it with everyone, and they went home. But now you come back to that old Michael in verses 20 to 23. David is opposed by her in his own home. Now watch what happens in verse 20. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants, maids, as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovered himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. I'll tell you what Michael is. She is a jealous, self-centered, proud, arrogant woman who pretends to be right with God, who's a loser. She's never been right with God. After David had blessed all of Israel, he goes to his home. 
And you expect your home to be a place of refuge. You'd think your mate would be behind you if anybody else in the world would be behind you. You'd think that. So he goes home to bless his own household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, who'd been given to David, met him to scold him. Alan Redpath, who's an old Bible scholar, made an interesting observation about this. He said, you know, this thing may have started David thinking, you know, I need to look for someone else. This person here is just no good. Well, she accuses David of taking off his royal garments in the eyes of the servants, and she claims the servants are going to be looking at him. She almost alleges some type of lustful indulgence, and ultimately, David is going to just have not much to do with her. In fact, this is the last time she is mentioned at all. David said to Michael, look, God chose me above your father. I don't care whether you like it or not. And I am celebrating my relationship with God, and I did not do this for you. I did it for him. And I don't care what you think. In fact, he says, I am willing to be more humiliated than that to honor the Lord. And furthermore, I'm more honored with the other women than you mentioned than with you. And the last mention that you have of Michael in verse 23, is that she died childless from a curse of God. David would not have any children through this pathetic woman. I'll tell you this about her. She sure is the daughter of Saul, isn't she? Anything that brings true glory to God is something she doesn't like. What a lousy partner. Michael disappears here. She did not honor God. God doesn't honor her. But regardless of what anybody else thinks in your world or in your family, you reverence God. And you reverence the word of God. God will honor you for that. I want to leave us tonight with three parting lessons from this sixth chapter of 2 Samuel. Obedience to the word of God is more important than any religious ritual. Don't ever forget that. There are all kinds of religious rituals that are out there. Half of them don't even make sense. But obedience to the scriptures is far more important than some religious ritual. Secondly, that Old Testament law, apart from Jesus Christ, will kill you. You may think, oh, when I was doing wrong things, God will just forget about that. Yeah, I, I didn't quite measure up to the bullseye of the righteousness of God, but he'll just let that go. He'll never forget about that. Just like these guys thought, he's probably forgotten about that Old Testament law of how to transport the word of God. He didn't forget about that. He won't forget about any one of our sins. And there's only one way out of this dilemma. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And finally... Do not ever treat any sacred thing lightly. Never treat the word of God lightly. You have a Bible in your home, you treat that respectfully. You reverence that book. That's God's word. Let's pray. 
Perhaps you're here tonight and you have never personally believed in Jesus Christ. That Old Testament law is hanging over your head. There's only one way out, and that is faith alone in Christ alone. So if you've never believed in him, right where you sit, just settle it tonight. Just invite Christ to come into your life and save you from your sins. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you for your people who've come out to partake of it tonight. We pray that we would continue to grow and mature and learn. Lord, our desire is not to please men. Our desire is not to get caught up in religious traditions or rituals. Our desire is to understand the scriptures and apply them so we may finish winners. And I pray that you would do that kind of work in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.